Well, we have a couple things coming up this weekend. There is a quiz uh, that is up and should be available now through the 6th of October. So you can take that covering the last couple of chapters. And then exam 3 will be on Monday uh, covering chapters 3, chapters 4 through 8, and chapter 9 each as a each is a unit. It'll be the same style as the last exam, same number of, que same number of questions, um, same styles of questions, just covering the different material. Why is it exam three? I guess because it was quiz three up above it and we're trying to do exam three already. How about exam two? You, everybody remembers exam two, right? We took that. What? What? That's what nobody showed up on that Sunday to take it, so everybody got a zero. <laughs> exam two, right? No, no, just my typo there. Typo on the board. So exam two is actually on Monday, not exam three, um, and that will cover again the same the same material. You can print out those summary sheets, those summary questions for each of those chapters. There's three sections: one for chapter three, one through the unit on the planets, chapters four through eight, and one for chapter nine. That you are allowed to print out, write notes on those. Again, no additional papers beyond those. Those papers, anything you want to write on them is acceptable for the exam, but nothing else. thing I forgot to put up there last time is that the second photo of the day quiz is coming up next week as well. So that will be available starting on Monday. You'll have the whole week to do to cover that. Uh, that will cover the pictures from the end of the last quiz, which will be September 6th through today. So nothing after today will be on this quiz. It will pick up on the 4th, will be the next quiz, will be at the end of this month, the beginning of next month. We'll start on October the 4th. And then homework 4, which I gave out last time, is due on the 15th. So that's what we got coming up. Any questions? Already? Picture of the day for today. Well, interesting image here that we have. This is actually um, looking at the aurora over here, this section here of the aurora in the sky, the Milky Way. But the way the image is taken, it's you're looking at the entire sky, the entire horizon at once. So everything is looped into a little circle here. That's your entire horizon. So the photographer standing looking up and this would be everything that you would be able to see. Off in the distance you'd have the trees there on one side. Uh, a little less over here uh, towards the set north where the aurora would be and then a little more uh, trees over here. Very close by actually a set of rocks that you see here so you've got these uh, little pathway leading to the Milky Way just the way the photographer has framed, framed the image. Uh, it's also very close to the water. You're actually seeing the aurora here is the part in the sky. This is the horizon so anything this over here would actually be the uh, nearby area that would actually be part of this uh, lake that has all of these rocks in it. So interesting way that it's framed to give you a really whole view of the entire sky. So when you're looking at the sky there, you're seeing everything that you'd see looking, you know, trying to look up and see everything all at once from the horizon to straight up overhead, the zenith straight up overhead, which would be where the camera was aimed. So you're seeing the entire sky at once. Instead of just getting an image of part of it, you're seeing the whole, the whole of the sky. And we do have our Milky Way uh, stretching through there. Uh, Milky Way being our own galaxy, stretching through here from side to side. That's what our galaxy looks like from inside it. And we will talk about that uh, 
couple of weeks, we've got to go through stars, then we'll start talking about our, our galaxy as a lead into galaxies. Um, but that is our galaxy. It's very flat. See, it doesn't cover the whole sky. It just has a little, it's this relatively thin patch that goes through a portion of the sky. And that's because our galaxy, if we could look at it, would look something, well, let's see, if we look at it from the edge, from outside, we'd see something like this. Got kind of a bulge to the center. Maybe you're seeing that there a little bit where it's a little bit thicker around this area. There's a little bit more material, a little less as you get further and further away. So if we could go outside of our galaxy and just start moving out away, we'd see our galaxy would look something like this in the distance. And we see galaxies much like that. But we're, we're inside it, we're actually trying to observe that from a point in here. So we see our galaxy, lots of material when we look in one direction. That's sort of where we're pointed right now. If we look in the other direction, more than we see in any other direction, uh, looking uh, up or down, away from the galactic, the disk of the galaxy, but still more, not as much as we see in the other direction. So it's really the way we see that we perceive the galaxy because we're stuck looking inside it. If we could travel from here and move out and look back at our galaxy, we'd get a completely different view. If we could travel up here, you know, take these trips that are hundreds of thousands of light years to go away and come back and look at these, we'd get a completely different view of our galaxy. If we could go up here, we'd see something like this. There's that bulge and there's these nice spiral arms stretching out from it. So we get a completely different view of our galaxy depending on where, where we could travel. We see galaxies like this. We see galaxies like that. Our galaxy, we're kind of stuck trying to interpret it because we're stuck inside it. So we can't really see, easily see what our galaxy looks like. We can use comparisons to other galaxies. Maybe these have some similarities to our own. And we can use some measurements that we can make to study our galaxy. Because really what we see when we look at our galaxy, we're only seeing that little bit of a chunk of our galaxy. We don't see all this over here. There's so much dust, so much material in the galaxy. See how there's some areas where it's bright, some areas where it's darker. That's the darker areas, actually there's a lot more material. It's just so dusty that it blocks out everything. So we can't really see all the way to the center of our galaxy in visible light. And we certainly can't see all the way over to the other side. So there's a lot more of our galaxy that we cannot see directly, especially in visible light. So pretty picture though the way the uh, photographer has framed this to get everything in there at once and to include you know, a, nice, a nice view of the aurora there as well in addition to the Milky Way. Yes ma'am? So the galaxy itself spins, right? Yes it does. Which is why we've got the, the arms the way they do? Well that's different but yeah. <laughs> the galaxy does rotate uh, every couple hundred million years. It takes a couple hundred million years for it to spin around once. The arms are not just due to the rotation, they're a, little bit more than, they're a little bit more than that. So the rotation is involved, but there's a little more than that. They don't, it's not just because they rotate, because otherwise they'd, have just, they'd be all wound up by now. 250 million years or so for the, to rotate, long, long, long time. It's been around for 10 billion, so how many times has it rotated? What, about 40? So it'd be all wound up tight after 40 rotations. So there's something else going on with the, the spiral arms that we will talk about later.
But they are sort of related to that, but it's, it's also a little more. Also, we don't completely understand it, too. So. Other questions? Alrighty, then we are off to getting close to the stars here. Let's see, we are on this one. Get your class here. And chapter 10 is on measuring the stars, so we're going to look at a lot of the properties of the stars here. Slideshow. So we're going to look at a lot of the properties of the stars and how we go about uh, measuring those different properties. Again, everything we get from them is from the light that we see. So we don't go out there and can't put the stars on a scale to weigh them to get a mass. You can't go take a ruler to them to measure how big they are. Um, you can't stick a thermometer in them to get the temperature. You can't take a sample and study it to get what they're made up of. So there's lots of different things that we measure and all of it we measure by looking at the light. Here's an image of a few stars here, a cluster of stars. And a couple thi one thing that you'll notice, first of all there's a group of stars all together. You'll notice that there are distinct colors. And stars do have distinct colors to them. Uh, we see here there's some red, some stars that are very distinctly reddish in there, here, here, scattered around. Uh, and some that are very distinctly blue. That's telling us about the temperatures. A very hot star is going to look blue in the sky. It's emitting lots and lots of high energy light, high energy ultraviolet radiation. So it's going to look blue to us because it's emitting a lot more blue light than it is red light. The red stars on the opposite end, they're very cool and they will emit a lot more red light than blue light and will look red to us. Then there are a lot of stars that are like our sun that will emit somewhere in the middle of the spectrum and will look a yellowish to a white color depending on their exact temperatures. But when we look at the sky we can look at something like this and get an idea of the temperatures just by comparing, just by comparing the colors of the stars. You can see this prominently in the winter sky. If you go out and look at the constellation of Orion, right, that's one of the ones that lots of people can recognize. Uh, it has four bright stars, four couple stars that outline its, the body. There's three here in the belt. There's a sword coming down. Um, this star up here is Betelgeuse. Looks very red. You can actually notice, if you look at it, you've got a nice dark sky and you can sit there and look, you'll notice that that star has a reddish tinge to it. Down here is another star, Rigel, will have a bluish tinge. Betelgeuse is about half the temperature of the sun. So much cooler, emitting a lot more red light. It's going to look very red. Rigel is about two or three times hotter than the sun and it's going to look a little bit bluer. So Orion, fortunately not nicely visible at least in the evening this semester, but if you go out you know, in January, February, it's real prominent in the winter sky and go out and take a look and see if you can actually tell you know, that there's a little bit of a reddish tinge here and maybe a bluish white tinge here. The blue is usually a little harder for your eye to pick up. The red usually stands out very, very well. So we can see that. You can see that directly in the sky. So what we're going to look at here uh, units of the chapter, we're going to look at measuring things like temperatures, sizes, masses. Uh, we've already kind of talked about velocities in terms of using the Doppler effect uh, previously. Luminosity, how bright are the stars? So we're going to look at that. Uh, 
Distances. So we're going to come back. We started talking about distances early on and we're going to come back now and talk about that again as new ways of determining distance come out. We're going to work our way from being able to determine distances within the solar system to distances to the nearest stars to really eventually being able to find the distances to the furthest galaxies. And it all kind of builds on each other. So we're going to look at that. And as I, again, I said, masses as well, one of the harder things for astronomers to be able to determine is the mass. One of the hardest things is the mass of the stars. So we're going to work our way through that. And we're going to start with right around here, our solar neighborhood. And I think we mentioned parallax before. Parallax, uh, if we look at an object, compare a nearby object to a more distant object, that nearby object is going to appear to shift. This is the reason that the geocentric theory held on for so long because this couldn't be observed. Right? If the Earth is moving, then we're over here. Six months later, we're over here. We've now changed our position. Okay? We've now changed our position. So this star should change its position relative to more distant stars. And we never saw that. It happens here in the classroom, right? I change my position all the time. So a student in the front is against this cupboard right now. But when I walk over to the other side, all of a sudden the same student is now against the windows. Your position, the position, the position has changed. If I wanted to measure how far I'd moved and I could measure the angle, I could figure out how far away the student is. Big deal, right? Because I could take a tape measure and pace out and say, okay, you're so many feet away from me. In terms of the stars, you can't do that. Right? We can't go take a tape measure to the stars to figure out how far away this is. But we can know how far the Earth moved between January and July. It's now about two astronomical units away from where it was. Right? We're one AU from the Sun and one AU again on this side. So that's two astronomical units. And we could measure this shift. We could see the star here at one point. There we see in January. Six months later we see that shift. If we can measure that angle, that gives us the distance directly. We know how far we've moved. We know we measure the angle. We can then determine the distance by this equation which just says that the distance in parsecs is equal to 1 divided by the parallax. So you measure the parallax, the angle, put it into, convert it to arc seconds. Mainly because even the closest star has a parallax of less than that. Yes? With our, um, with, with us having, mm -hmm. instead of being, you know, a circle, right. being stretched out the way it is, doesn't that change the... It would be in that it wouldn't be necessarily exactly two astronomical units, but it is something that we can very easily calculate. So it might end up being 2.0386 astronomical units at one point. Maybe if you do different measurements, it might be 1.9. But you could figure out exactly what it was. But yes, it, would, it wouldn't be exactly 2 because you wouldn't necessarily be, be there. Now, the, other, the unit is a parsec, uh, which just means a distance where the parallax is equal to one arc second. So there's the par, there's the sec. That's where the name comes from for parsec. It's just a distance where the parallax is equal to exactly one arc second. And there are, well there's exactly one star within a parsec. And that's the one that's real close to us, that's the sun. 
The next nearest star is actually more than a parsec away. A parsec is equal to, a, to about three and a quarter light years, just for a comparison. So a parsec is about three light years away. There are no stars currently within that distance. Will there be eventually? Yeah. Stars do move, so their positions are slowly changing. And there will be stars right now. Right? Alpha Centauri system is the closest to us. That won't always be the case. Thousands of years from now, tens of thousands of years from now, hundreds of thousands, those positions are slowly changing. And there will be other stars that actually get closer. As of right now, there is nothing within a parsec. The closest one is Alpha Centauri, which is about, about three quarters of an arc second. So not quite one arc second, it's a little over four light years away. That's the largest parallax angle. That's why it took so long for us to measure it. If you recall, the full moon is 1,800 arc seconds. So in order to measure this, we had to measure with precision you know, more than one part in 2,000. Take the full moon, divide it into 2,000 little pieces going across and measure one of those. That's why the Greeks couldn't measure it. That's why Tycho couldn't measure it. That's why early telescopes couldn't measure it. It was just such a small angle. It's not that it wasn't occurring. We just did not have the technology until the, almost the mid-1800s to be able to measure this. Now we can measure much smaller than this. We can actually get measure stars that are down to tenths, hundredths of an arc second parallax. So we can measure distances out to hundreds to even a thousand parsecs. Still only a very tiny fraction of our neighborhood though. But when we go and do these measurements, we can actually map out a little bit as to what our neighborhood looks like. Um, do the sample here and then I'll show you an image of uh, the calculate of the of what we see in our neighborhood. Uh, this gives you, first of all, the nearest star to the sun. We always say Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri is actually a Alpha Centauri actually has three stars there. So there's Alpha Centauri has two very bright stars close together. The primary one is very similar to our sun. But those two stars orbit close together and they're orbiting around each other. There's also another star much further out. And this is Proxima Centauri. Very small, faint red star. And as it turns out right now in its orbit, very big long orbit, it happens to be closer to the Earth. The Earth is over here. So Earth is over here someplace. Proxima Centauri is closer than the rest of the system. If that orbit takes, you know, many thousands of years, come back a thousand or ten thousand years from now, then guess what? It might be actually further away. But as of right now and for our lifetime, it will be the closest star to the Earth and the Sun. So there's actually three stars here, two that orbit really close together and one that kind of orbits kind of like a planet around both of them. But it is big and hot enough to actually produce energy on its own. So it's not a planet, it is actually another star. Do an example of distances. Um, we're actually going to do this as part of what we're going to do for lab today. So I'm going to go, we're going to go over this again uh, in a little bit better than what, they, what they've got a sample of here. But just to give you an example of the sizes, if you make the sun a marble, that big or so, the earth to scale is about a little grain of sand and is about a meter away. So you've got a marble on one side here. 
You got a little grain of sand on the other. In between those two, you got two more grains of sand, and that's about it. Give you an idea, kind of give you an idea of how empty everything is. There's nothing else in between those. That would be the sun, there'd be a little Mercury and a little Venus grain of sand, and then there'd be the Earth's grain of sand. In order to do that to scale, that's one meter, that's the Earth. How, what do we have to do to get to the nearest star? And the nearest star would be another marble. Okay, Alpha Centauri would be about the size of the same size as the sun. But it would be 270 kilometers away. So 270 kilometers, that would be what, about 120, about 160, 170 miles away. What's in between those two marbles that are 170 miles away? A few little specks of dust around us, real close, within a couple meters of one, and a few little specks of dust probably around the other, a couple meters away. Nothing much else in between, in between those. So space is incredibly, incredibly empty by, com by comparison to anything we're used to. The solar system goes out, you know, maybe about 50 meters. That's about 50. This, is about, this would be the scale. This would be about one astronomical unit. You go about 50 of these out. By the time you do that, you've gotten to most. You've covered all the planets. You've gotten through, even through Pluto and the Kuiper Belt and all of those objects are included. You'd be out past those. There's not a whole lot else out there. There might be some more, a lot of cometary orbits, a big cloud of comets out there, but not a lot of material. Really, the rest of it is essentially empty. So if you want to make that trip from here to Alpha Centauri, you know, don't plan on any rest stops. There's no place to stop along the way. Once you leave our solar system, once you get out past the Kuiper Belt, there's essentially nothing there between us and the next nearest star. So, give you an idea that we see our galaxy, we saw the images of that today, there's really not a whole lot in there. And I'm going to go over, when we do our lab section, I'm going to go over a different calculation with a slightly different scale. Bring our little Earth and Sun. So, do something a little bit bigger and I'll do a little quick model here and then I'm going to have you do some calculations as part of the lab exercise for today. So we'll do a little bit of a different uh, calculation but similar thing that we're going to do. But the whole idea is really how empty everything is. That there just is not a lot of material out there. Um, I have my online classes do this as an exercise. They have to do a, they do a calculation to figure out you know where, here's the sun, sun's about a basketball size, maybe almost a foot across. And then I have them, you know, where's Mercury? And Mercury ends up being this little tiny object about 43 feet away. And there's nothing else in between. That's the closest planet, so there's nothing else in between those two. So again, just giving you an idea of how really empty everything is. So trying to look at that a little bit here, I think I've got my image here. This is the 30 closest stars to the sun. So there's us in the middle. We're not really at the middle of anything. We figured that out, but within about with these 30 stars that are closest, scattered around, all around, all different directions. There's the Alpha Centauri system right there. That's the closest of them. Um, Barnard Star is another one. They're all named, essentially they're all named after different catalog names. You don't see a lot of the stars that you might have heard of. We don't say. I've, well, I've got Betelgeuse and Rigel still up there. Uh, there's lots of other, you know, some other bright stars. We don't see a whole lot of names of the real bright stars that are actually named in the sky. Sirius and Procyon are about the only two that are actually close enough that they have you know, actual names to them. Of the really bright stars that we see in the sky, most of the stars that you go out and see at night, 
The only ones you could actually really see here, you could really, you could see Alpha Centauri if you're far enough south. You can't see it from here. We're too far north. You can see Sirius and Procyon nicely in the winter sky. They're the two dog stars following Orion through the sky. Most of the rest of these are much too faint to see, even though they're the closest stars to us. Most of these are very, very faint red stars and very difficult to see. So only a handful of these are actually going to be visible from Earth if you're going out there and looking at night. So if you want to go out and look at Barnard's star, you need a good sized small telescope, maybe even a pair of binoculars at least, to be able to pick it up. It's not going to just be visible to you there. Even though it is one of the closest of the stars, to the sun. It's just that faint. And we find that the most of the stars, very many of the stars, are really much, much fainter than what we're used to compared to when you go out there and look at just random stars in the sky. Most of those are incredibly bright by comparison. So here is a picture of, here is Barnard's star. Um, it was actually discovered because it had what we call the largest proper motion Got to use the arrows there because of how faint this object is. There's an arrow pointing to it. You can see the pattern, other pattern of the stars. There's these two and this bright one over here. And how it's moved there to there. So it's moved up a little bit in a period of time about, what was what, 20, 22 years. So the stars do move slowly. In 22 years it moved that much. 30 arc minutes, that's about the size of the full moon from there to there. You can fit the full moon nicely in there. So it moved a tiny fraction of the full moon. That's the fastest moving star that we see. So they do move. They will change their positions very slowly. But nothing that you'll notice over tens of years, thousands of years even. If you could go back, you know, a couple thousand years and take an image of the sky, the constellations would look pretty much the same. They wouldn't be changing that drastically. If you can go back tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years, you'd start to see that some of them are changing. Stars are all moving in different directions. So some of them might spread out and some of them might condense together depending on how they're moving. So we get the stars are moving. through the, So the stars do actually move. That's what we call proper motion is just the motion we see against the sky. That's separate from parallax. We can me we measure the parallax, we can measure the proper motion. They're two separate motions that we can distinguish. When we measure that, we see two different, we have two different types of motion. Because we've already talked about one. We talked about the Doppler effect and measuring the sp speed of a star. What we measure when we measure the Doppler effect is only the motion of the star either towards us or away from us. So it moves only a part of the velocity. So if this star Alpha Centauri is really moving in this direction, okay, that's the red line, that's how fast it's really moving. Some part of that motion can be looked at as being going towards us and some part of it would be looked at as going across the sky. This is what we measure as the proper motion. Watch it moving slowly across the sky. This is what we measure with the Doppler effect, right? If it's moving straight towards us, no matter how fast it's moving, we're not going to see its position change. Right? If I walk, I can't really do it here because I've got the, but if I walk straight towards you, my position relative to the board doesn't change. That would be its radial velocity. That's what we measure with the Doppler effect. That's the part that we can, me we can measure that with the Doppler effect 
and find out how fast it's going towards or away from us. If we look at how fast it's moving on the sky, we can measure this part and we can put it together and get a real velocity. So what we measure here with the Doppler effect doesn't mean that's really how the star is moving. It's only a part of that velocity. We have to really look at two things. We have to look at how fast it appears to move across the sky and we have to look at the Doppler effect. When we put those two together we find out that you know, every second Alpha Centauri is moving 30, 30 kilometers, almost 20 miles through space. Now of course, again, space is so empty that that's going to take it many, many years, thousands and tens of thousands of years to really make any difference in its position in the sky. So that's a little bit, uh, just looking at the different types of motions that we can see. One we've talked about before was the Doppler effect. The other one that we have not is the proper motion. Just as, and that's the way we kind of look for some of these stars. We try to look for the closest stars using the proper motion because the closer a star is to us, the faster it's going to look like it moves. Right? You're driving in the car, you know, telephone poles right by the side of the road, zip by you real fast. Ones further out in the distance move much slower. Okay? Speed is all the same. It's a matter of appearance that we see. We see the same thing in the sky. A nearby star moving at, one, at the same velocity as a very distant star is going to look like it's moving a lot faster. So it's one way to help identify those stars that might be actually close to us. Okay, how about luminosity? How about brightnesses of stars? Well, there's two, bright, there's two brightnesses, two measures that we do. And there is an absolute brightness. That's how bright a star really is, how much energy it's actually emitting. And there is an apparent brightness. Apparent brightness is how bright something looks in the sky. So, apparent brightness we go out there and look at the sky at night, we see a really bright star. That's how, br how bright it appears to be. Astronomers have instruments they can use to measure that instead of just saying, oh, it's bright or it's not so bright. We can measure actually how bright it is. We can make it a number, give it, give it a number. You know, how much light are we detecting from it every second? That's how bright it appears to be. The luminosity or the absolute brightness is really how much star that how much light that star is emitting every single second. That really that's the number that tells us something about the star because the apparent brightness really depends on you know what the, how close the star is to us. Right? You could have a real you could have a nice flashlight and if I take it 100 meters away and shine it at you, you can see it. If I bring it up to your face and shine it in your eye, Looks a little bit brighter. It's the same flashlight. It's putting out the same amount of energy. It's not changing, but it looks a lot brighter when it's closer. So a star could look very bright for a couple reasons. It could be very close to us, but not really a very bright star. Or it could be a tremendously bright star at a very large distance away from us. So there's two different measures of brightness, and they're related. It's another way we're going to have to be able to determine distances. So we have an absolute brightness. We have an apparent brightness. This is how bright it appears to be. Or it appears this bright. 
This is a true. A true brightness, which we call formally is the luminosity. How luminous is it? How much light is it actually putting out? So we have an apparent brightness and an absolute brightness, and they're related by the distance. Now, the apparent brightness doesn't tell us a lot, but it's easy to measure. All I got to do is I'll go out there and look at the star. How bright is it? How bright does it appear to be from us for us here on Earth? We know we can measure what that apparent brightness is. Absolute brightness is a little bit harder, but there are ways to try to figure this out. If we find both of these two, if we can measure the apparent brightness really easy, if we can get the absolute brightness, not quite so easy, but it can be done in some cases, we then know that there's a relationship between them and the distance. It gives us another way to find the distance to a star. So even if it's too far away to determine a parallax, we can't measure its shift. If we can figure out how bright it really is, how much energy it's really putting out, and we can do pretty good on that as we begin to understand stars, we can then now have a new way to measure its distance. So we can figure out how far away that star is, and that is important for being able to map out the galaxy, being able to map out the universe. We really need to know all of these distances. Now, uh, they get the objects, this is just an inverse square law. As we look at an object, I use the example of the flashlight. Right? Take a flashlight. If I take it very far away from you and shine it at you, okay, you can see the flashlight. If I bring it up to your eyes and turn it on again, you know, it's blinding. It's the same amount of light. But here, at this distance, at one unit away, whatever you want to call it, one meter, all that light, a certain amount of energy comes through one square. So it's all, all that light that's coming is concentrated in one square. If you go twice as far away, that same amount of light that went through this square at one unit distance, at one meter, is now going through four squares. So things are a lot fainter. You're taking the same amount of light. Okay, here's your source. That light is coming away. Some of that light is coming in this direction. So much comes through this square. Okay? If that square wasn't there and that light could keep traveling out to a further distance, now when it comes twice as far away, it's now spread out over a much larger area and it's now going to be one quarter the strength it was. Three times further, and now it's through nine. That same amount of light that went through this one square back here is going, has to be spread among nine squares. If you go ten times away, ten times further away, you've got to go through a hundred squares. Things get fainter really, really quick. And that means that a lot of those stars that you see out there at night are incredibly bright. I mean, they dwarf anything. Our sun is not really a very bright star by any stretch. only looks bright because we're sitting here right next to it. Lots of these other stars are tremendously brighter and would overwhelm the sun. If you could put them here in the solar system, they'd overwhelm. A lot of the stars that you see out there at night would completely, completely brighter. And that's just because of this. There's, we're seeing them as so bright even though they're so much further away. And that's what we use. As an, it's called an inverse square law. It means that as things get further and further away, an object twice as far away isn't half as bright. It's one quarter as bright. An object three times as far away isn't one third as bright. It's three times three or one ninth as bright. And that continues outward. We kind of saw that when we talked about gravity. Gravity had an inverse square law for distance. 
The further you got away, the gravitational force between the sun and an object at one unit away was something. If you went five times further away, it was one twenty-fifth, not one-fifth. So that's just an example and trying to show it here in a diagram, diagram form. So what that means is that what you might see in the sky, you might have these two stars out here. Star A is a relatively faint star, star B is a relatively bright star. But star A is closer to us. So looking at distance here, not looking out at the night sky, we're looking at distance. So there's star A, faint but closer to us. There's star B, bright but further away. If you look overall, this observer actually looking could see these two stars, if everything's just right, looking exactly the same brightness. Their apparent brightness would be exactly the same. Their difference in their actual brightness is only a, f a factor of the distance. So this star A looks so bright because it's a faint star that's really close to us. Star B looks so bright because it's a much brighter star but much further away. So we can use a comparison there to figure out, it's a way to figure out the distances. If we know how bright those stars really are and we know how bright they appear to be, then we can get some comparison and we can figure out, you know what, star A must be a lot closer to us than star B. Again, there's ways to go through and do the calculations to figure out exactly how much closer if you know the real brightnesses and things. But you can use that as a start at least determining sort of like the temperatures. Right? I showed you the red and the blue stars. I didn't say to figure out exactly what the temperature of the star was, but there you can do that. But you can at least tell what star is hotter and what star is cooler. Now if you can know absolute and apparent brightnesses, you can tell what star is closer and what star is further away. So you can get some ways to determine exactly how, far, exactly how far away a star is, but you can at least get a very rough idea as to which one is closer or which one is further away. Now, in order to quantify this all, to put numbers to it, we actually use a scale called the magnitude scale. This was developed thousands of years ago uh, by a Greek astronomer Hipparchus. And what he did was to go out and look at the stars and cl classify them. And what he did was he took the brightest stars and let's see how to do this. Brightest stars. So here's all of the brightest stars I see in the sky. Those are stars of first magnitude. Went down to the next grouping. Okay, there's the brightest grouping of stars, you know, maybe 20, 30, 50 stars, however many he grouped. Those are the very brightest stars. Those are stars of the first magnitude. And as he went down, the next set of stars would be the second magnitude. Third magnitude. Let's write them out if I'm doing that. Third magnitude. And so on down to the faintest stars that he could possibly see, which were stars of sixth magnitude. So the brightest stars were stars of the first magnitude, the faintest were stars of the sixth magnitude. Again, just by looking at what he could see. So from you know, ancient Greece, where there's no lights, no city lights, no nothing after dark and it gets completely dark, the very faintest stars you could see would be sixth magnitude. Can't begin to see them now here, pretty much any place in the U.S. 
Six magnitude stars would pretty much be completely washed out. First and second and third you can still see pretty well. Uh, further down really just depends on how bright the area is. If you're in the middle of a city, you might have trouble seeing, you know, well, if you're in a real big city, you might have trouble seeing the brightest stars. But he grouped them into six categories, one through six, just depending on how bright they appeared to be. Now we've since expanded that scale, but we've kept the way he designed it, which means when we call these brightest stars first magnitude stars, and these six, that the brightness increases this direction. The smaller the number, the brighter the star. So magnitudes are backwards from what you are used to doing. Right? You're used to saying, you know, a distant or a temperature, something is 50 degrees versus 60 degrees, the bigger number is the hotter one. Well, in terms of brightnesses, the smaller numbers are always the brighter ones in magnitudes. So that's what our scale has now been expanded to on the left-hand side of the chart here. Here's all those stars that we started with. Everything that, everything that Hipparchus did pretty much was between first and sixth magnitude. It's just this little section here. We've since added in lots of other material that he didn't consider. He didn't consider things like the planets or the moon or the sun, which are much brighter. And those actually have negative magnitudes. So continuing this, if you're going to have something brighter than first magnitude, it goes to zero, negative one, and so on. So in terms of magnitude, the sun, the brightest object in the sky, is actually negative 26.7 magnitude. So extremely bright. Vastly overwhelms all of these others. The moon would be, a, a full moon would be about minus 12. Venus is minus 4. You'll see there's a few stars in there. Uh, Betelgeuse is right about first magnitude, but Sirius is actually brighter. Now he didn't specify that much, so he didn't get into you know, different grades. He had first magnitude, here's the grouping of the brightest stars. So yes, yeah, some of them are brighter than others, but this is, we've now since divided things much more, much finer than he did. So now we have negative 1.5 for Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Other objects like Polaris is about 2.5 magnitude. Relatively bright star. Right about in here, but not near one of the brightest stars in the sky. So people like to think sometimes Polaris is this really bright star because it's, you know, it's, everyone hears about it, it's the North Star. It really just happens to be the star that's located near the pole right now. And a relatively bright star, you know, not a very faint one, but not an extremely bright one either. Now with technology we've been able to go beyond six. So instead of stopping at sixth magnitude, that's all Hipparchus could see. We've gone down to seventh, eighth, ninth. And in fact, all the way down to into the 30s now. I think we can go down to 31 or 32 with some of the Hubble, Hubble images. So that's what this is saying here. There's Barnard's star, one of those really close ones. About nine and a half, almost a tenth magnitude star. If you've got a pair of binoculars and a dark site and you know where to look, you can just barely pick out that star. And that's one of the closest. That's actually a very close star to us. Doesn't put out a lot of energy, but it happens to be one of the very closest ones. If you have a telescope, a 10-inch telescope will get you down to 14th magnitude. Uh, that's, a, that's a large size, you know, amateur scope that you can buy. Typical ones like the little Galileo scopes are much, are significantly smaller and not going to get you near. They're going to get you closer to the binocular limit. A one-meter telescope can get you down to 18th, 20th magnitude, 26th magnitude, down to about 30th. So much, much fainter objects. The other thing that the way the magnitude scale works is that the way Hipparchus did it was using his eye. 
Right? We didn't have electronic detectors back in ancient Greece to be able to make you know, very accurate measurements. And your eye doesn't measure things uh, uniformly. So it turns out that the difference in brightness between these stars, between his brightest and his faintest stars, was a factor of 100. We still retain that today too. A difference of 5 in magnitudes between 1st magnitude and 6th magnitude is a factor of 100 times in brightness. So these stars that are 6th magnitude are not 6 times fainter, they're 100 times fainter. And that means that each magnitude is about 2.5 times brighter. So a first magnitude star is about 2.5 times brighter than a second magnitude star. A second magnitude star is about 2.5 times brighter. Again, not what we're used to, right? If something's 300 degrees and something's 600 degrees, you know it's twice as, bright, twice as hot. Not the same way it works with magnitudes because of the way it was originally developed. So backwards in that the larger numbers are actually the very faintest objects and in that it's not actually uniform in that, you know, first magnitude, second magnitude, these aren't three times fainter, four times fainter. They're two and a half times two and a half times two and a half. Each factor, each factor between each magnitude is two and a half times fainter or brighter depending on which way you're going. And every five comes out to be about a factor of a hundred. So meaning that if you go from some of the brightest stars in the sky, the first magnitude. So first magnitude to sixth magnitude would be 100 times. If we go then from sixth magnitude, uh, what, sixth to eleventh, would be another 100 times. Eleventh through sixteenth would be another 100 times. So if you're getting down to sixteenth magnitude, which is getting down, you know, to a good sized telescope, a telescope that's half a meter in size, it's 100 times 100 times 100 or 1 million times the brightness difference. So those bright stars that you see in the sky, things like Betelgeuse, the stars in Orion, and the stars that you could see with a real good sized telescope, something that's, you know, 15, 20 inches across, there's about a million times difference in the brightness. So everything is really condensed down to the scale that we use for determining, for determining brightnesses. Now temperatures are, uh, we looked at this a little bit earlier on, temperatures tell us the uh, temperatures, colors tell us the temperatures of the, of the stars. And if we look at sky stars here, there's Orion, which I tried to sketch up on the board. There's a much better image of it. There's Betelgeuse, very, very red star will look distinctly red. Most of the other stars in Orion will look very blue to you. Rigel is the next brightest one. If you do that as a comparison, you know, try it this winter, you'll be able to see a reddish star and a slightly bluish star. The other ones will as well, but they're not, quite, they're not near, as near as bright as the other two, the two main ones. So that tells us something about the temperatures. The hotter the star is, the more energy it's putting out, and the higher level of energy it's putting out. So a very hot star like Rigel is putting out lots of ultraviolet radiation. We can't see it. But if it's putting out lots of ultraviolet, it's also putting out lots of the radiation next to that, which would be violet and blue, 
would be the next closest thing. So it's going to have a bluish violet tinge to it. These very hot stars are going to have some kind of blue tinge to them. Um, the other cooler stars are emitting, Betelgeuse emits a lot of infrared radiation. Okay, we don't see infrared radiation directly, but we see it looking red because it's emitting a lot more red light than it is blue light. Now the other image over here, you can sort of get an idea looking at some of these stars. You can see some that are blue. I mean, you can see almost the whole range, not the whole range of colors there, but you can see some that are very red, distinctly red. These are extremely cool stars scattered around here. There's a few that are bluish, that are rather bright. There's some that are reddish, but not quite so red. You get a kind of a whole range of colors of stars when we look out at the sky. And it's really telling us the temperatures. Now, if we have a way to measure these, to make measurements, to we can actually determine, you know, how hot is Rigel? Well, we'd have to know how blue is it. Okay, you'd have to have a way of measuring how, how much blue light is it giving out relative to red light. Then you'd have a way to actually measure and say, okay, it's giving, this Rigel is so blue that it's so many thousands of degrees. How red is Betelgeuse? The redder the star, the cooler it's going to be. So if we see a redder and a redder and a redder star, it's going to be a cooler and cooler and cooler one. Can we measure how much red light it's putting out compared to how much blue light that gives us a way to measure the temperatures. And that's what astronomers do. They take a telescope and they'll point it at a star or multiple stars and measure through a filter just how much red light Betelgeuse gives you. Filter out all the other colors. Just look at the red light. How bright is it just in the red light? Okay. Do the same thing for Rigel. Measure just how much red light it's giving you and measure how much blue light it's giving you. The ratio of those can tell you the temperature, then tell you the temperature. How much more red light than blue light is it giving out? How much more blue light than red light is it giving out? Gives us a way to actually determine these temperatures of the stars. And let's see, we're here. Let's go ahead and do that next time. I'll hold that off. So we've got an introduction to it there, but we're running out of time here. I will go ahead and cover that. A little bit more detail. We'll work on chapter 10, not next time. How about on next Wednesday? So we'll cover that on Wednesday. Exam is exam is Monday. So we get a break here. Stretch. Yeah. With gravitational imaging, couldn't it sometimes be hard to detect how light how bright one star is compared to another? There could be, but that the gravitational lensing won't affect the stars. Well, That's much further. I'm sorry. Couldn't it interrupt how we see them? Not really, because these stars are so close. You'd have to have something gravitationally strong in between us and the star. Beyond it, it, it does become important when you're looking at galaxies, when you can have something with a massive black hole in between it. Mm -hmm. But for in terms of a star, you'd have to have a black hole really right between us and Betelgeuse to change anything about it. There could be some changes because of that, but the odds of that happening are really, really minuscule. But the gravitational lensing is an important thing we will come back to uh, later on. Anything else? All right.